the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again, welcome to the show. This time we're just streaming on the web and on the ABC Listen app. Coming up, free training at TAFE to encourage people to think about being a wool classer and one of the state's largest blueberry growers says that uh, he's a bit frustrated by the time it's taking to get government grants for his business that was hit by $2 million worth of damage from the floods last year. Yeah, it, it's slightly frustrating, but I do understand there's a hierarchy of needs, um, you know, from getting people back in their houses, um, you know, through to, to, to what, what we need. So, you know, we're, we're, we're patient and working through that process. More on that uh, coming up on the program. But uh, first, let's turn our attention to the fruit industry in New South Wales. It's facing a challenging harvest after wet conditions late last year. Paula Charnock owns an orchard near Orange in the state central west and says they're expecting low yields in apricots, pears and other stone fruits. She told Hamish Cole that cherries and berries are the only fruits that are performing well. So unfortunately, it's not a great apricot season. When the apricots were in flower, we were having lots of rain and the bees just couldn't get out. So we had um, very poor pollination. And the ones that did set because the rain continued in the cold weather, uh, a lot of them just fell off. So we've got a very light apricot crop this year. And is that something that you've seen across a lot of your fruits, that these kind of conditions have just been not very conducive for them? Yeah, so the, across the cherries, um, it's estimated that in some of the varieties across the district, 50% of them could have shed. So the, the cherry crop was very light. Um, we've had a lot of disease pressure on, on the other fruits, like the apples and the stone fruit. Um, the apples are going quite well now, but the stone fruit, it, it's just starting, we're just starting to pick it now. So it's all, the whole season's been quite late. Yeah, with your, your apples, how, how did they fare early on and, and what's kind of caused the rebound? Um, I guess because they're not due to be picked for some of them for several months yet. So they've had time to recover from the wet and the, and, and the cold. Um, and so it's helping them to, to, to grow well. Just the disease pressure on those has been yeah quite high. Yeah, what, what are some of the diseases that have caused those effects? Uh, so black spot is one that's really particularly difficult to manage in wet years and so we've had to do a, a lot of a really good spray program on them to be able to keep the apples clean. And what about your boysenberries? How are, how are they looking? So the, the boysenberries have, have come through well. They also started a little bit later, um, but they've been picking well and they're just about to finish. And what's the, the yield looking like for, for those compared to previous years? Uh, the yield on the boysenberries actually hasn't hasn't been too bad. The cooler weather has made them a little bit easier to pick, but yes, so we've we've still been able to pick plenty of the boysenberries. Oh, look, it uh, started off uh, extremely difficult with uh, you know consistent uh, wet weather and uh, uh, in some cases uh, a flooding of uh, of uh, properties and uh, at orchards. Uh, so uh, the, the season. Ultimately, ran late, uh, but uh, you know, the conditions have improved uh, over the last uh, uh, three to four weeks with uh, plenty of uh, sunshine and uh, and warmth. So uh, the crop uh, certainly has uh, has come on, and uh, there is uh, now uh, good uh, quantities and good quality of uh, 
uh, all the stone fruit uh, across uh, certainly uh, New South Wales and Victoria. Places like Queensland, South Australia and WA is going through a tough point at the moment, but they've mostly avoided the worst of the flooding that Victoria and New South Wales have seen. Is that going to mean there's a bit they're looking at quite a quite a good harvest? Uh, well, as I said, certainly Queensland uh, was. South Australia um, is, uh, I think, uh, in general terms, you know, have uh, come out of it reasonably well. You know, there may be some that uh, have been affected by the the uh, rising uh, river, but uh, a good percentage are probably uh, further back from the river than uh, uh, and, and therefore not affected. And uh, uh, WA, uh, you know, I saw a recent. Uh, media release on some uh, new varieties, uh, some uh, flat peaches and uh, and I think nectarins that uh, they were they were promoting. So, uh, yeah, again, WA hasn't been affected by floods, but uh, yeah, the cooler conditions uh, have always make it that a little bit harder to, uh, to, to ripen fruit. So, as I said, probably around the country, the season's been uh, running uh, two or three weeks uh, late because of those cooler conditions, but uh, given that uh, most uh, most states of uh, and most growing regions have you know uh, had some uh, uh, warmer weather over the last uh, period, uh, as I said, we're starting to see the fruit uh, come on. Stone fruit Australia's Trevor Ranford speaking there. Eleven past twelve. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. One of the state's largest blueberry growers says he's a bit frustrated by the time it's taking to get government grants for his business that was hit by $2 million worth of damage from the floods last year. Blue Mountain, uh, Blue, Mountain Blue Farms rather, has uh, orchards at Lindendale near Lismore and Tabulum near, uh, between Casino and Tetterfield, but its packing shed is based in South Lismore. Kim Honan uh, visited there to speak with Managing Director Andrew Bell about the government grants, his plans to bring in overseas labour and the low price of blueberries in the supermarkets. And also she asked him about the flood funding. Almost 10 months since the the flood, you've been up and operating for, well, a fair few months now. Yeah, so... um... It's been a challenging year, but but uh, by the start of the season in, in May June we were back up and running in a limited capacity, and then at full capacity by the peak of our season. So it was a big effort by the team, but we did get there. Yeah. And um, so you had the uh, acting prime minister here today, and the federal emergency and agriculture minister today. Were they here to make any promises to Mountain Blue? You're still waiting on some money through the supply chain support program. Yeah. No. So no. No promises. Um, they were here to. Um, you know, assess the region and see how things are getting on. Um, we we do have our package um, that has been announced and we're putting in our application which closes next Friday um, and then um, we'll go through that process with the relevant departments and, you know, some funding might hopefully flow in the, in the uh, next few months. And has that been really frustrating for you, waiting for that program to be announced and the decision won't be made until the week of the one-year anniversary of the floods? Yeah, it, it's slightly frustrating, but I do understand there's a hierarchy of needs, um, you know, from getting people back in their houses, um, you know, through to, to, to what, what we need. So, you know, we're, we're, we're patient and working through that process. And um, and what was your total flood damage bill? It was up three or four million? A couple of million, yeah. yeah. And so with this support program, the, the most you can apply for is two million? Two million, yeah, yeah. 
Are you going to apply for that year limit? Just, we're just finalising our um, application now, so just working on the, the finer details of that, but yeah. So what is it that you, I guess, need that $2 million for? What, you know, what's the criteria of the program? Yeah, well, we've um, had to replace machinery, um, so that's going to, to help with that process, and also flood um, preparedness, so, um, you know, we're looking to potentially build a, a, a big platform in here where we're standing today to raise all of the machine out of the, the flood danger so that if it happens again, um, we can come in with a hose and hose the mud out and get on with it. Now, I didn't get a chance to ask the Agriculture Minister today, but one of his election promises was with the Pacific Islander Worker Scheme that families would be able to come out. What sort of benefit would that be for Mountain Blue Farms? Um, I mean, obviously there's issues with accommodation at the moment. Yeah, so people being with their families is um, obviously a really important thing and so we would definitely support that. Um, some of the practicalities we'd need to work through. Some of our farms are in remote locations without a lot of accommodation. So if we're accommodating 200 people and that suddenly became 100 people plus 100 families, that's a, a whole... Uh, extra number of beds that we'd need to address so we just got to work through some of the practicalities but in principle you know we very much support people being with their families. And the other promise was to reduce the cost for employers involved in that program? Anything that that takes cost out of the the process is, is welcomed it's um, been an expensive year and the cost of inputs are going up um, so yeah any costs that we can take out would would help us and help us to you know pass through to, to our consumers. And so are we likely to see some families come out this year from the Pacific Islands to, to join their, their workers? If, if it's allowed and if the accommodation um, allows it, you know, Lismore's obviously a hard place to get accommodation, we would very much welcome it. And at, at the moment, uh, blueberries are super cheap, $1.90 a punnet, um, some supermarkets three for $5. Wearing your hat as the president of the Australian Blueberry Growers Association. That's it, isn't it? Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, what's causing, I guess, is, are we seeing a glut at the moment? Uh, we're very much a supply and demand driven industry. So um, we're in a period of time with a lot of product coming onto the market in a short period of time. Um, and it's a challenging period to sell where... Uh, over the Christmas break, people are on holidays, people aren't at school, um, and we're competing against summer fruits, mangoes, cherries, stone fruit and the like. So, you know, it's a combination of factors that have led to that, but, you know, good opportunity for consumers to get out there and buy a lot for... Is this the cheapest that we've ever seen blueberries? In Australia by, by a bit, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mountain Blue Managing Director Andrew Bell. It's coming up to 16 minutes past 12 on the New South Wales Country Hour on... Uh, on the web and also on the ABC Listen app. Well, the jury is still out on whether seaweed can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it long enough to earn valuable carbon credits like trees do. An independent review of the federal government's carbon credits scheme caused, called for more transparency around data and Professor Katrina Hurd and her team at the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies in Hobart are trying to do just that with seaweeds. But as Fiona Breen found out, there's still a long way to go. In order to demonstrate that seaweeds can sequester carbon, you have to be able to measure the amount of carbon dioxide that is removed from the atmosphere and then how much of it is stored long-term. So the long-term storage, we say, is over 100 years and that has to be in an, a form that is unreactive and then won't return to the atmosphere. Have you developed a way to actually measure 
the, the, or you're looking at a framework? No, we, we have a framework away. which ha must, probably has about 20 different components that need to be measured in order to demonstrate that seaweeds would are sequestering carbon and to be able to start to put numbers on that. So there's no numbers on these different parts of the framework yet. They're, they're just there. And so some things we know quite well. For example, we know the rates of seaweed photosynthesis. We know how much seaweed is in a seaweed bed. We know how much carbon is in that. So we have numbers around that. Things we don't have numbers around are how much of that seaweed carbon ends up in sediments or ends up locked away in a form that is a long-term, 100-year storage. What we do in the framework is we start off by comparing seaweeds to trees. So in, on terrest in terrestrial environments, we know that trees take up carbon dioxide, they store it as wood, which can be stored for long-term, maybe 100 years or more, and also it's stored as soil. So soil is the biggest, by far the biggest carbon store we've got on the planet Earth. Seaweeds we also call forests, and people think that perhaps they might sequester carbon in the same way that trees do. But seaweeds are really different because they have a very fast turnover time. So they, their lifespan is only a, is like maximum 10 years. In most cases, it's only one to two years. So they're not really storing carbon like trees on a long-term basis. Because trees really in this new era are quite valuable in terms of carbon credit schemes, etc. They're earning money. Yeah, so yes, so trees do sequester carbon because and they store it as living biomass if for example, if they live to be a hundred years or more, some trees are a thousand years old. But and they particularly store it as soil. So that we know that trees can be used for carbon credits and we know and they're it's relatively easy to quantify. Well, I know that uh, various aquaculture farms are sort of trialling, growing seaweeds, uh, perhaps to offset some things in, in their industry, but also as carbon sequestration. Is that happening around the place? There's a lot of work, there's a lot of interest in doing that. However, because they've got very short lifespans, that carbon isn't tied up for very long. And if it's an aquaculture, it's only tied up for a few months before they're harvested. So in aquaculture situations, it's very difficult to demonstrate that that carbon, it's got to be locked up for a long time. So there may be applications. So for example, you could use seaweed, for example, to replace oil for plastics. And in that way, you're sort of using seaweeds and not using oil. So that is some form of sequestration, but to be, it's probably quite small. Uh, very small, actually, compared to what we need to do to remove it from the atmosphere. So do you think that maybe seaweed, even though you're looking at this framework, might not be as uh, good as forests, for example? Uh, so from my knowledge at the moment, I, they're probably not as good as forests and at sequestering carbon just because of the very fast life cycles. However, what we have to be able to do is to track where the seaweed's going to. So when it gets ripped off the rocks, where does it end up? Some of it ends up back in the terrestrial environment. It gets washed up on the shore. Some of it may end up in the deep ocean and in the sediments, and that's what people are trying to quantify now to see if that is a possible storage for, for seaweeds. But we are some ways away from being able to understand this correctly. That's Professor Katrina Hurd speaking there to Fiona Breen at uh, this week's International Temperate Reef Symposium in Hobart. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. In a bid to bolster the wool harvesting workforce, training institutes like TAFE are offering a fee-free wool classing course. 
The Australian Wool Exchange, or AWEX, Wool Classing Registrar, Fiona Rawley, hopes that the initiative will attract more people to the industry, which is uh, battling, of course, like many industries in rural Australia, a skills shortage. Ms Rawley is speaking to Cara Jeffrey about the course and wool classing generally as a career. The course is a Cert 4. So a Cert 4 does have a certain um, time frame that's set down by government. People can come with prior knowledge and that prior knowledge obviously holds them in good stead. So that would mean that they would be able to um, move through the, the um, course requirements more quickly. Um, so possibly between 6 to 12 months for those sort of people. And then other people, you know, it may take as long as two years if they haven't had any previous experience. How is it mostly structured, the course? Yeah, the, the interesting thing about wool classing is it, it varies um, nationally depending on, you know, the, the location. So, like, in a closely built-up area, you've got a TAFE college that delivers wool classing maybe every 100 kilometres. So, in that case, you might attend, a, you know, one night a week or a, a full Saturday, you know, a fortnight or a month. And then other situations, some training providers might have a lot of the theory that's done remotely and then they come and give in, have industry visits to finish those assessments and see those practical skills in shed. So it, it really is a, a flexible delivery. The best thing is to, to find the one that suits you. I guess what type of people does a career as a wool classer suit? Yeah, well, interesting. I've actually just come from an air-conditioned shed, but it, I must admit it's the first one I've ever been in. So <laughs> times are a-changing. Um, you do have to be physically fit, certainly. Um, I have some manual skills because it is, you know, there is work that needs to be done. There's no getting away from that, but a certain level of fitness. A, an interest in, in, in rural, rural and agricultural environment, obviously, is helpful too. But I think it really suits someone who has strong leadership interest and also technical interest it is at the end of the day a technical product that meets the processes needs and part of the wall classing requirements is that you lead the team that you show by example and you problem solve so those really good analytical skills as well like any job the appeal also is if it pays well so once a person ah. is qualified as a wall classer is it a good paying job in in the agricultural industry it certainly is. Um, you know, I think supply and demand has meant that, you know, classes are nearly in a position where they can name their price. Um, but I always say that, you know, a, a good wool class is value for money, but they also need to be, you know, valued. So it's a, it's a two-way street here. Uh, the award, you know, the, the pay rate is, is set down in the award. It's a, it's a, it's a daily rate. Um, but certainly classes at the moment are asking above the award, which is quite okay. And um, it is very good money. In terms of retention, do many people stick with it as a career choice? Yeah, I think that's been an issue with the wool harvesting um, industry. It is a seasonal job in many respects and classes that are interested in travelling. So it, it probably suits a lifestyle for a certain part of your life. You know, you might be a uni student who does it in, in your gap, in your holidays. You might be someone who, you know has a gypsy lifestyle and happy to travel around so you're going to do that for a certain amount of years would you maintain that possibly not but you know there certainly are people who are professional wool classes who have done it for many many years and stayed in the industry but you know we really need to provide a work environment that is conducive to making you want to stay as well
And uh, you mentioned before that you were out earlier in a air-conditioned shed, so that's got to be uh, pretty good at this time of year in the Riverina. So are sheds becoming more updated to make them more appealing workplaces? Are you noticing improvements there in shearing sheds? Yeah, I think there has been a lot of work in that space. And obviously the shearer shortage, the wool harvesting staff shortage and the classes shortage has encouraged growers to look at their facilities and say, we need to make these appealing. We need to have somewhere to wash our hands, a toilet to go to, um, you know, air, air conditioning, icing on the cake, if you like. But basic, clean, functioning facilities are really the, the things that most teams, well, all teams require. That's the Australian Wool Exchange Wool Classing Registrar, Fiona Rawley from Cootamundra in the Riverina, speaking there to Cara Jeffrey. It's 25 minutes past 12 here on uh, the Country Hour, on uh, live streaming on the web and also on the ABC Listen app. Shortly we'll have some weather details, but before we do that, flood water that continued to make their way down the Darling River. Uh, the Bureau of Meteorology says a moderate, moderate flood level may be exceeded at Puncari this week. It could reach 8 metres by late January. The Darling River at Batundi may exceed the major flood level there, 7.7 metres around late January. And we caught up with Narita Healy from Court Noreen Station between Menindi and Puncari to find out how things are looking at her place. It's probably risen um, about 6 inches in the last day or so. It was already over the bank um, and in lots of creeks and that, but now it's really sort of starting to fill up and we're um, making the decisions now to um, what we need to build some banks around to protect. Are you getting a accurate or clear understanding of how much water you, you think might hit your property? I think we've all sort of reverted back to the um, old-fashioned way of a stick in the ground and ringing the neighbours, you know, a little bit further upstream. Uh, and watching what their sticks, what the measurements on their stick is doing um, to try and work out what's going to happen like for you in the next couple of days. You have made the decision to send 700 sheep to Meatworks. What's led to that decision? With the river um, coming up a bit quick and things like that, we're just running out of room at, um, on our property. So we spoke to the agent. He sort of suggested that we hold on to them until the end of Feb would be um, better prices and a better um, kill spot. But unfortunately, like, we just don't have the space if the river comes up like it's supposed to. So we needed to shift them out, um, like, this week. We didn't have an option. I think the biggest thing is just the unknown and perhaps the lack of um, the lack of information that's coming out. So you're having to make these decisions on a bit of guesswork and things like that. So, um, so that's... That's probably the frustrating thing is that there's really no sort of clear indication of what's happening. It's a bit of guesswork and a bit of doing what you can now just to save yourself, like in the end. And the Southwest Water Users Group is calling for a thorough review into the flooding that we've seen around Menindi and elsewhere. And uh, while Water New South Wales says the flood was unavoidable, the Southwest Water Users Group Chairman Howard Jones disagrees. First of all, this is not a big flood. Uh, there have been much bigger floods uh, above Burke uh, than this one. Uh, this one's a big flood because of total and utter mismanagement by water in New South Wales. There's no other way to describe it. The decision-making process from April through to now has been one of uh, sitting on their hands, taking poor advice and not listening to locals. I mean, the locals at Benindi, Graham McCrabb, 
probably gives more accurate information on water heights and, and, and predictability of, of where the water's going to go to the point that most of the people downstream of him are taking more notice of him than, than they are have with the very rare reports from the bomb or SES or from New South Wales water, which usually are inaccurate uh, and do not portray the situation as it is. People on the rivers, particularly on the Darling from, from the top to the bottom, have a history of knowledge of what happens in any given flood. And when you get a situation like this where you have, you have the unknown, which is what are they going to do when the Menindee Lakes over, overcharge and they have to, they're forced release, which they have in this case, which they consistently say they didn't have to do because there was enough airspace. Well, that lie has come to fruition. They doubled the output from, from the main weir uh, virtually overnight putting people in uh, houses in jeopardy, putting properties in jeopardy, causing anguish and turmoil all the way through, through their own ignorance and inability to, to carry out their job. What are you hoping changes so this isn't repeated again in the future? I would like to see the state governments and the local governments get together at the end of this, this, this event, whether it be the Darling one or the Murray one, and do a debrief, a proper debrief with, with professional people um, sitting at the table, drawing the information out of where the failures were, and there are plenty of them to draw out. That would, that would give us, because if I take the Wentworth Shire Council and the people at Menindee, there's been a lot of documentation of this chain of events so that they know now what to expect in any given circumstance. That is invaluable stuff taking us forward. So we need to have that round table chat amongst all the authorities to see where the buck stops, and no one's got any idea. Supposedly it's the SES, but every time you put some pressure on them, they say it's the bomb, and then put pressure on the bomb, they say it's New South Wales water, and around the table you go again. So this is where people have lost complete confidence in the process or the hierarchy of management, the emergency services, and I hate knocking uh, volunteer staff, but the reality is that some people are failing to carry out their tasks, and the communities are bearing the brunt of that. That's Howard Jones from the Southwest Water Users Group uh, saying that uh, the, the flood was unavoidable and uh, wasn't a huge flood, so uh, plenty of things could be done to stop it. And we've also got a text in from someone who's saying that uh, Water New South Wales was the cause of the Lachlan floods because of mismanagement of Wyangla Dam as well. So uh, there's uh, certainly that opinion out there. It's 28 minutes to one here on the Country Hour, which is uh, broadcast live on the stream and also on the ABC Listen app. Not on the radio today, on the radio tomorrow, but not on the radio on Wednesday because of the uh, one-day internationals that are on at the moment. Well, let's find out what's uh, happening with the weather details with uh, with uh, Neil in a moment. But before we do that, Adam Story's here with some news headlines. Good afternoon, Adam. Bit Welcome hard, back. A bit hard to keep track of your show, mate. I know. don't know when it's on. I don't know, know when it's <laughs> off. <laughs> We're always on the web. I know you're mate. always here. We're it's always just, on mate, the web. <laughs> whether well. anyone's listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, come on. I know they're out there. Steady on. Hello. <laughs> uh, okay. First day back, yeah, better find out what's Taking happening. Your better find out what's <laughs> happening in myself here. Had to get the computer going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ring up IT. Yeah, I will start local. Um, Forgot my password. Yeah, oh yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, the uh, proposal for the uh, cashless gaming card uh, will be going to Cabinet, and the Premier says he's going to have it approved before the March election, so it'll basically be set in stone uh, if that's the case. The uh, proposal uh, has, of course, uh, drawn intense uh, criticism from Clubs New South Wales, while Labor has refused to back it. They're uh, proposing a uh, trial period for it. Uh, but the Premier is determined to uh, go ahead, so it's probably going to be one of the major issues uh, at the election. You know, well, I w- often thought about money laundering. If you're going to money launder, you would do it through, you know, poker machines say, or through the casino. They, I mean, they, they say seems it's to the be, last bastion of it. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be obvious to me. It's if that's pretty, what I was going to do, uh, that's how I'd do it. Pretty obvious. Yeah. Mm. Um, a new report reveals uh, there's been a, uh, thousands of serious incidents in disability group homes over the past four years. The data from the National Disability Insurance Scheme uh, Quality Safeguards Commission recorded 7,000 incidents, including 1,700 that led to uh, serious injury and another 1,700 that involved abuse. Uh, Search is continuing for four people who are still missing after that plane crash in Nepal. Uh, at least 68 people are confirmed to have died in the crash with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade saying it's urgently seeking information about the welfare of one Australian who was believed to have been on board. Uh, in sport, Eddie Jones is coming back to uh, coach the Wallabies yes. uh, after David Rennie uh, was sacked as the uh, head coach. He'll take up the position next month, just eight months after, uh, sorry, eight months before the uh, World Cup uh, in France, and that's after Eddie was sacked by England. <laughs> but Eddie says we can win. Well, he says he says we're we're in with a shot. Mm. Yep. And, of course, the Australian Open uh, underway as we speak, with uh, Nick Kyrgios already in trouble for not wearing his helmet on his scooter yesterday. Is that right? Yes, could be facing a possible fine. Right. I don't think it'll affect his campaign. All eyes on Nick Kyrgios. Yes, but, I mean, Nadal plays today. It'll be interesting. He hasn't been in great form. In fact, there's there's Nadal and six Australians are actually on court today. Mm, Uh, Okay. We'll be watching with... Raphael, obviously not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Raphael will be on court. No, no, he's Spanish. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Our Raphael. Yeah. That's right. But he has won the Australian Open ten times yes, or something. That's yeah. right. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Good to have you back. We'll see you tomorrow. Oh, pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Adam's story there with the news headlines. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details now. Neil Fraser at the Pierre. Good afternoon. Yeah, hello, Michael. Fairly hot around some parts of the state. Is much yeah. much rain around? Any any thunderstorms or anything around? Not, not at the moment. Mm. There's a couple of showers on the very far north coast there, and and possibly some showers and thunderstorms building up this afternoon through the south, mainly around the southern ranges, Riverina area. There's nothing at the moment, and there's a line of showers coming into northwest Victoria. So it's probably going to miss New South Wales in the short term, the next few hours, but. Potentially, some of these thunderstorms could be severe this afternoon and evening. Uh, around the southern ranges and the riverina, possibly some heavy rain with those. And even in the southern table, uh, southern snowy mountains area, possibility of some large hail. And then further west, out around the lower west, and potentially some of the thunderstorms could produce some damaging winds. So a little bit unstable, but it's all to come this afternoon. Nothing really happening at the moment. For tomorrow, it's fairly settled. We might just have one or two showers about the north coast and adjacent ranges. And any thunderstorm activity looks like being mostly confined to Victoria. It might just sneak over the border, but don't expect any severe ones then. But then there's a, a cold front approaching on Wednesday, and that unstable atmosphere will move right over central and southern New South Wales. So potentially more severe thunderstorms across through the central west right down to the southeast of the state. These thunderstorms will continue then on Thursday across much of the east and potentially severe 
more likely in the north, and then on Friday it contracts to the north. So still thunderstorms around the northeast part of the state. Showers up and down much of the coast, probably mainly north from the Illawarra, and then it tapers off on Saturday, but more starting to come through again on Sunday and next Monday. So lots of activity and potentially a developing trough over the inland next week might bring plenty of moisture down from the tropics and, and more rainfall for the inland parts. Okay, so widespread rain with that, possibly? Well, more just convective. So right, so similar thunderstorm. thunderstorm and so, yeah, yeah, a bit sporadic, but certainly the potential is there that it might develop a bit more. But in the, in the, yeah, the short term, it's really Wednesday and Thursday with the most rainfall around, and then it contracts to the northeast Friday and Saturday, and then yeah, increases again from Sunday. Right, so sort of back and forth, and and, fa- yeah. and fairly warm. I well, we go. The change is going to bring some uh, milder temperatures, so still quite hot for today and tomorrow, and in the north maybe on Wednesday, but generally some much milder temperatures coming through the state, so some relief from all the heat, especially it's a low-level, low-intensity heat wave out in the southwest at the moment. Mm, yes, indeed. So we've been watching that and some uh, warnings too uh, about that um, at the moment, though. Luckily, no no fires or no serious fires, but certainly some warnings around. Uh, Neil, thanks for that. Okay, thanks, Michael. Neil Fraser at the Bureau. It's uh, 22 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, getting a few texts on the water issue. Sherlock says the stick model. We're talking about this measuring the floods. The stick model is more accurate, more accessible, and quicker than the government bureaucrats. Uh, the models that they're using, that means that the Northern Basin Review was a political fix. Uh, Peter is uh, letting us know that he's listening to the Country Hour on the Listen app in the Gold Coast. And uh, someone else has texted in saying, welcome back to Adam. Uh, and they say they know that feeling about returning back to work after a bit of a break. It's uh, 21 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour uh, on, the, uh, on the web and uh, also on the ABC Listen app. Well, the impact of last year's floods and extremely wet, wet weather, wet spring across southern Australia has hit the hay industry with low supply, meaning some high prices for farmers if they actually manage to cut a crop. Jumbok, Jumbuck Ag hay analyst uh, Colin Peace says it's uh, one of the most difficult seasons in years on the East Coast, particularly for Victorian growers. Incredibly difficult, boggy, complicated, you know, people pulling their hair out trying to, to make hay amongst um, weekly rainfall events throughout October and November. Um, We've never had a year like it. It's thrown up some of the um, worst quality hay um, that we've had in years. In some places, it's caused record levels of poor quality hay, particularly in southern Victoria. It's also pinned back a lot of the um, acreage that we could actually access and um, the production's down in, in other more northern areas. So how's that impacting supply and prices? In the short term, there's been a lot of activity from brokers accumulating for domestic clients uh, and hay exporters. Very keen to sort of accumulate open hay in particular for their their export hay plant because they they have to have hay to put through it and that's meant that there's been an escalation in prices. You know, you've got a very broad range of prices, good quality open hay with less than 40 millimetres of rain selling for as high as $320 a tonne on farm right down to 
the poorest quality hay that's been through the ringer had 180 or 200 mils of rain and um, you know you can get 170 a tonne on farm for that kind of stuff. So this is ex-farm Victorian Mallee and Wimmera for instance. So very wide range prices this year. And what's the outlook like for the next few weeks and, and months of the year? That's what everybody is asking and that's in the lap of the gods if you like in terms of weather and the forecast is for wetter than average still but uh, I honestly don't think that there's um, some it's a very good time to be doing climate forecasts for the next three months they tend to be a little bit less accurate this time of the year than others it all comes down to when is going to be the autumn autumn break is it going to be the classic sort of uh, April 25 sort of Anzac day which um, is, is a lovely timing which will get the pastures kicked off early and allow extended you know, early grazing and, and ease the demand for hay. Uh, but if it's if it's hot and dry and that autumn break is extended out into May and June, there could be a, a real shortage of hay this year, particularly quality. And hay prices for decent quality hay are already very high. I don't think they'll go much higher, honestly, but I think any um, delay in the autumn break will probably lift the prices for the poorer quality hay because it'll be the roughage that um, the stock will be looking for. That was Jumbuck Ag Analyst Colin Peace ending that report from Sarah Lawrence. On the Country Hour, it's 18 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Farm workers in northwestern Victoria now have access to a bus service to help them get from Robinvale to Weeman and Lipparoo. According to uh, 2021 census data, more than 10% of homes in Robinvale don't have a car. That figure is almost 3% higher than the rest of the state. Swan Hill Rural City Council's Director of Community and Cultural Services, Bruce Myers, says the trial service, which is running until early July, should help the agriculture industry attract and retain workers. It was actually an initiative that was set up through the Department of Transport and Department of Agriculture, who we've had a really excellent partnership with over the last few years with a project worker that's been assisting us with, with a few of these things to do with housing and worker uh, transport. So uh, long story short, the Department of Transport uh, provided some money to council, also the Robinvale Houston Workforce Network, which is another group made up of growers and providers in that area. Uh, has provided some money and councils administering the process. Certainly a lot of the legwork has been done by others, but, but we're picking it up from here. And so, yeah, we have a local uh, bus operator and the program started on Monday. Um, and it's obviously starting fairly quietly at the moment, uh, but we really want to try and get the word out there and promote the fact that there is a, is a bus that's heavily subsidised for workers that has numerous um, pick-up and drop-off points from Robinvale out to uh, Lipparoo and pass a number of the big organisations that are, that are growing and, and picking out that way. So, so yeah, we've got that for, for several months and we'll, we're going to try and get as many people as possible to use it to try and build a case for the provision of a, of a bus service. There'd be others in farming communities that might be scratching their head about why a bus service like this would be needed. What is the situation that Robinvale faces in terms of households having access to cars and those kind of things that makes it a bit more unique? It's important that socially people are located where the services are rather than everyone living out on the properties. 
Um, so what we want to, this, you know, the provision of a bus service encourages people to set their routes down, maybe have a permanent presence, know that they have, they're not under pressure to have a vehicle to be able to get to work. And then hopefully over time they decide this is where they want to stay. They want to continue working for, for that company or another company in the local area. And it's just one less pressure point. And it's certainly there's plenty of examples around um, Victoria and New South Wales where there are similar services that have, that have been put in place. For example, what we call the workers' bus that goes between Tullybuck and Swan Hill. It's been going for a few decades. So we, we, there's plenty of service models out there that we're looking at and we just really want people to use this, give us feedback, get feedback from the bus operator and, uh, and, and really try and promote it as a, as a way to make things easy between people being able to get to work. Logistically, there must have been a lot of groundwork done if you think that all of those different farming entities would have had different start and finish times for shifts and that kind of thing. How flexible were those organisations in trying to make this arrangement work? Oh, look, there's, we really appreciate all the feedback from, from everyone that's provided it through the people who've set it up. Um, but of course, there's no one size fits all. Like, for example, there's some, some organisations that have 12 hour shifts, which make it difficult for this sort of a program. Um, but but this is what we live and learn. We need to find out what the, what the um, big organisations require, what the workers are going to use, and then that's why it's a trial. We get to we get to pilot it, and trial it, and tweak it, and hopefully come up with a model that's it's uh, really effective. Some of the companies would have their own buses already picking up and dropping off workers. Is the plan to no longer need mini buses running around doing that kind of work, or is this to complement that? Oh, I think it's a bit of both. You know, if organisations are showing leadership and providing services, that's great. But if, if there is another service there, and, and again, this is all this is all new to us. Um, it was identified as a need, and we're just really fortunate to have funding to be able to do the trial. And that's what that's what's going to tell us what steps we need to take next. Are you expecting there to be peak times of the year where it's in demand more than when there isn't quite as much farming activity needing labour? There could be peak times, but at the way things are at the moment now, that there's so much diversity in the industries in the horticultural agricultural industry around Robinvale that it's, it's it is a 12-month operation. It might only be quiet over over a, a, a Christmas period, for example. So uh, again, we'll find that out during the trial, and obviously, it's really important that we keep engaging with the growers. Andrew Young is a vegetable grower at Weeman. He says he'll be making sure his staff are aware of the new bus service. Yeah, I, I think it could be useful for us. We've got quite a few staff that seasonally live in town and work out here. Do all of them have access to cars to travel to your property? No, certainly not. We've been a little bit concerned about the car pooling in that sometimes those with the car just tend to get used a little bit. So if it's a little bit more of a commercial arrangement, that would make sense. Will you be highlighting that the bus service is now available for your workers? Yes, it'll be a little bit of a change, actually. When we get general inquiries, we currently say that we prefer those with a car or a group to have a car between them. Um, some of the staff live on farm, but we can't accommodate all our staff and some prefer to live in town anyway. So certainly um, it'll be good for us. It, it may mean we have to manage our timetables around it a little bit, but that's all right. We can manage that. In terms of attracting and retaining staff, I know that that's pretty tricky for the vast majority of horticulture businesses, are you in the same position? Yes, staff is obviously a, a key issue to the district and we're not excluded from that. This will be targeting probably the casual staff more than the permanents. But even the permanents, I suppose, gives them flexibility where there's a couple sharing a car and one is working late or early. One or the other 
move independently, so that could be useful. Tim Jordan is the National Workforce Solutions Manager with Maydeck Australia. He says the bus trial will enable more people living in Robinvale to gain employment. We see the lack of personal transport um, being a significant barrier to people gaining uh, sustained employment in that area. How often are you contacted by some of the agricultural companies in that area that want workers, but you're just not able to match up people who are able to travel those distances? Demand from the local employment in that area is constant, has only gotten worse since the outset of COVID. Tim Jordan is the National Workforce Solutions Manager with with Maydeck Australia, ending that report from Kelly Hollingworth. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. A farmer in South Australia's Riverland is expanding his watermelon plantings as prices remain stable and the crop's hard skin provides protection against pests. The region has ended its third year of fruit fly restrictions with 20 outbreaks of Queensland fruit fly, two more announced yesterday. Barmer grower Nathan Jericho says he's glad he decided to experiment with adding a small planting of watermelon to his pumpkin and grape operation a decade ago. So we've had some different grower groups come around or neighbours and I think um, they could see the work that was uh, involved with growing watermelons. It's definitely labour intensive, especially come picking time and you know, bending the backs and getting down to, to pick those watermelons up. So, but yeah, a lot, a lot said, oh, good luck to you, but most have been encouraging for sure. When you first started growing, how big was your crop or how big was your patch and, and what was the sort of process for getting started? So at this beginning, I just started with a seeded variety of watermelon called a red tiger. Well, that's the variety. And it's a long watermelon. It's got lots of black seeds in there. And we started with that. But then we were sort of pointed in the direction of going to seedless. So investigated different seedless varieties. And we started raising our own seedlings in our own little nursery. And from there on... Yeah, a couple of years after, once we sort of got a bit bigger, well, then we started sourcing seedlings from nurseries. How big was your first crop? First crop, I reckon I only picked about maybe 10 bins, and we're doing now up to 150 a day. And where do you sell your watermelons to? So most of ours, well, they get directed to Adelaide, and then from there on they get distributed across the country, primarily in Adelaide, but we've got stuff that goes to Melbourne, to Tasmania, right through into Queensland, and we have dabbled with a little bit of export as well. And you were saying, Peter, that really, while some people think of of watermelons maybe more as a tropical fruit, they're really grown in so many different parts of Australia. Yeah, they are. So Queensland being probably the biggest grower of watermelons and probably being, I guess, tropical or subtropical. Uh, But really, watermelon's a desert plant. And you find, you know, paddy melons growing on the top of sand hills. Uh, so they love the heat. So, but yeah, definitely uh, they love the hot, dry environment. And I've got to ask, being watermelons, do they need a lot of water? Surprisingly, yeah, watermelons, like I said earlier, is a desert plant. And they don't, well, they, yes, they do need a lot of water, but they don't need as much as, say, wine grapes, almonds, citrus. It's a lot lower than you think. That's Barmer grower Nathan Jericho speaking to Eliza Berlage and uh, now more on that fruit fly detection and apparently uh, 
The uh, department in South Australia says Queensland fruit fly maggots were found in backyard apricots and plums, causing some new outbreaks in Berry and elsewhere in the South Australian Riverland. <coughs> Let's go to markets now, Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. A few less lambs about at 14,700, but more sheep at 7,300 yarded. Wasn't good news for mutton, with sheep down at least 10 to $20 a head. The heaviest crossbred ewes over 30 kilos carcass, 114 to 128. And the good heavy trade sheep, 90 to 117. Plain sheep, 59 to $80. Price results for lambs depended on whether they were fat or not, with decent trade and heavy lambs still in short supply against secondary types. The best heavy shorn lambs are up to $10 dearer. The 30 kilo plus exports from 243 to a top of $288, and the heavy 26 to 30 kilos, 209 to 261. These fed lambs trend in for an estimated 800 to 860 cents a kilo. The best heavy trades, 180 to $212. But any lambs that were dry and lacked fat cover continued to be penalised and were often cheaper. Medium trades lacking polish, 150 to 175. Lighter trade types, 100 to 140. With the smallest lambs, 44 to $90. Secondary light lambs continued to track under 700 cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Two Corowa sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Agents penned additional numbers this week with just over 10,000 sheep and lambs on offer. Quality improved across the yarding with both domestic and export processes operating. Lambs sold to softer trends and mutton was $20 to $25 cheaper. Young lambs were firm to $10 softer. Heavy trade $178 to $198 and heavy lambs sold to $203. Shorn lambs were well presented, trade weights easing $10, light and medium trade 151 to 173 and heavy trade 166 to 210. Heavy lambs for the domestic and export processes slipped $8, 193 to 228. Heavy export types were $18 cheaper, 223 to 246. Processes paid from 113 to 135 for light lambs and restockers from $32 to 135 and up to 146 for medium weights. Heavy Crossbred ewes slipped 14 to $25, 88 to 110. Heavy merino ewes from 77 to 115. And medium sheep sold from 59 to $88. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Dubbo sheep and lambs. Numbers lifted by 4,600 free yarding of 17,800 lambs. It was a good quality yarding with some good lines of well-finished heavyweight lambs along with odd pens of fair quality new season lambs. There were very, very few pens of merino lambs, though there were very large numbers of hoggets, both crossbreds and merinos. Most of the usual buyers were in attendance and operating. Lighter, plainer quality lambs remained tough, while the better, heavier trade weight lambs were around firm. Trade weight new season lambs sold from 135 to 205 to average around 820 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs sold from 105 to 196. Heavyweight lambs were 7 to 10 cheaper, with the 24 to 30 kilogram lambs selling from 183 to 235, while the lambs over 30 kilograms sold from 243 to 283. Lambs for the restockers were around firm, selling with the young new season lambs selling from 70 to 110. Hoggets were cheaper, with the crossbred hoggets selling from 89 to 145, while merino hoggets sold from 44 to 96. We have the balance of the lambs and 9,800 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To Wagga cattle now. 
Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 2,500. Combined in the total, 725 cows. Most of the usual buying group were at the market. However, not all feedlot orders were in play. Domestic processes were subdued, making purchases mostly under 400 cents. There were plenty of feedlot type cattle and a good selection of heavy steers and bullocks. The market was hit with further price corrections over most classes. Veal, 360 to 440. Trade steers and heifers, 340 to 390 with a single out to 408. Feeder steers, lightweight, were back 50 cents, 3.55 to 4.46. The medium weights tracked 34 cents cheaper, 3.40 to 4.20. Feeder heifers dipped 45 to 50 cents, medium weights 3.50 to 3.89. Heavy steers were back 40 cents, $3 to 3.88. Bullocks slipped 19, 3.36 to 3.88. Heavy cows lost traction, slipping 25 Heavy cows, 290 to 323. The middle run were back 40, $2 to 305. Leanne Ducks, MLA. To Forbes cattle now. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 816 head. Quality was mixed with some good lines of well-bred finished cattle on offer along with the secondary types. The usual bars are present competing in a dearer market. Yearling steers to processors sold from 375 to 430 cents for middleweights, 330 to 380 for the heavies. Plainer types to feed ranged in price from 365 to 420, while the heifer portion to processors sold from 340 to 400, with those to feed receiving from 345 to 401. There was a handy offering of heavy steers and bullocks penned, which sold from 318 to 377 cents. Grown heifers ranged from 312 to 350. Cows slipped five to six cents with heavy two score from two fifty eight to two ninety three, three and four score selling from three oh five to three fifteen. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And finally to the details of Tamworth cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers increased to 968 mixed quality cattle, a good supply of yearlings along with a few vealers, growing cattle in fair supply, an increased gallery of buyers were in attendance. Varying trends saw restocker steer vealers sell from 4.48 to 5.21 cents a kilo, the heifers from 3.50 to 5.02. Medium weight yearling steers sold to cheaper trends, 3.30 to 4.55 cents. Heavy feeders were firm to cheaper for the most part, 3.44 to 4.44 cents a kilo. Increased competition saw Lightweight yielding heifers to restockers dearer, 280 to 452. The medium weights to 430 cents were unchanged, with heavy weights quite a bit cheaper, 330 to 380 cents. Firm to cheaper trends on heavy ground steers to process, despite increased process participation, 294 to 358 cents. Feeders over 500 kilos, 318 to 370. Three and four score ground heifers, 272 to 340. Cheaper trends in the cow market with heavy three and four scores, 266 to 282 cents. A kilo. James Armitage from LA in Tamworth. Thanks for that, James. You've been listening to the ABC Country Hour on the web and on the live stream and on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back tomorrow on the wireless between 12 and 1. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>